Acts chapter 11, beginning at verse 1 through verse 18. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. So when Peter went up to Jerusalem, the circumcision party criticized him, saying, you went to uncircumcised men and ate with them. But Peter began and explained it to them in order. I was in the city of Joppa praying, and in a trance I saw a vision, something like a great sheet descending, being let down from heaven by its four corners, and it came down to me. Looking at it closely, I observed animals and beasts of prey and reptiles and birds of the air, and I heard a voice saying to me, rise, Peter, kill and eat. But I said, by no means, Lord, for nothing common or unclean has ever entered my mouth. But the voice answered a second time from heaven, what God has made clean, do not call common. This happened three times, and all was drawn up again into heaven. And behold, at that very moment, three men arrived at the house in which we were sent from Caesarea. And the Spirit told me to go with them, making no distinction. These six brothers also accompanied me, and we entered the man's house. And he told us how he had seen the angel stand in his house and say, Send to Joppa and bring Simon, who is called Peter. He will declare to you a message by which you will be saved, you and all your household. As I began to speak, the Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. And I remembered the word of the Lord, how he said, John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. If then God gave the same gift to them as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? When they heard these things, they fell silent. And they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. So reads the Word of God. As I was growing up, I had the privilege of singing in several choirs under the direction of my own father. It was an enjoyable time for a number of reasons and has many fond memories even now. But uh, he had a favorite expression that he used that as I read this text, it comes to mind again. His statement was, once more, with feeling. You've heard that in a number of different settings, I'm sure. That was his way of letting us know that after we got the notes and the rhythms right, the harmonies were balanced and tuned, once the dynamics of the piece were clarified, then we needed to make the music. We needed to pull all of that together into an expression that we could imagine was in the composer's mind when he or she wrote or arranged this piece. So we weren't really adding anything when we sang that song once more with feeling. We were just singing it with a clearer and fuller understanding of what that composition was intended to communicate. And when a choir does that, it can communicate very effectively to those who are listening, bearing on its voices combined the meaning and message and 
intent of the composer. That was in my mind as I'm reading this text of Scripture from Acts chapter 11. It's very much like what's happening here in this passage. The story we just heard from Luke in chapter 10 is being retold through Peter here so that we can ponder it a bit. Let it sink in what it means, what it was actually meant to accomplish, that story. Why it's here. And you can see all of that just by the way Luke records this story, this second telling of the story of Peter and Cornelius. It actually lets you know, I should say it also lets you know, that in the telling of the book of Acts, this this is a really important and significant moment. When you see repetition in biblical narrative, you know that something important has, has been communicated. For instance, in last week's text, as this story was being told, the, the number of times that someone rose up just jumps out at you from the text. You rise up in response to the gospel and in receiving of the truth that reconciles you to God. Here, we hear repetition that extends for, for a whole paragraph, retelling the same story, almost in identical detail, slightly different order, but it's intended to help us pause and ponder and think about all this means, which is exactly what we want to do with this text this morning. Let's look at it from three varied angles this morning. You can see those listed in your bulletin. We're not dividing up the text into portions this morning. We're actually just talking about the whole text from three different angles. The sweep and structure of the passage, then the content and contribution of the story, and then finally the message and meaning of this encounter. We'll work through it and see if we don't gain an appreciation for exactly what's going on here in this story, but also how we engage with it and what it means for us what it can do to us, how it can motivate us, encourage us, strengthen us, guide us, direct us in ministry even today. So first, the sweep and the structure of this passage. As we just noted, Luke records this retelling from Peter's point of view. So we see a difference here, one of the few differences in this text, we see a difference here that will come from that very point, that very fact. It's being told from Peter's point of view. So it begins with Peter's own initial experience, with his vision that was well into the story of chapter 10. You see that in verse 5. And then we don't add in the vision that Cornelius had a couple of days earlier until the point in the story at which Peter himself is made aware of the fact that it happened in this progression of events, just as we'd expect. So he doesn't find out about Cornelius' vision until later, and that's when it's inserted in the story. There's little differences like that, but really not significant ones. Aside from that, there really is little variation in this account and that of chapter 10. And since we just read it again, there's not a real need for us to dig any deeper into the details of the story so much as into the meaning and what we get from this particular text. What is quite interesting to note here, as we look for signs about why it's here and why it's told the way that it is, what's particularly interesting to note, and that to which I believe Luke is drawing our attention by telling this story a second time with such little variance, is how it's packaged, how it's structured. 
to make his point clear. Look, for instance, at verse 1. Now the apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea heard that the Gentiles also had received the word of God. Now look at verse 18. When they heard these things, they fell silent, and they glorified God, saying, Then to the Gentiles also God has granted repentance that leads to life. What are we supposed to be doing here? We're supposed to be marveling that the gospel went to the Gentiles. And what we can see here in verse 15 tells us something about the nature of that experience. The Holy Spirit fell on them just as on us at the beginning. We read these things and we can read past them rather easily and quickly. I think that's one of the reasons why the first 18 verses of chapter 11 are in the book of Acts. Because as the story of the church continues, as we go from generation to generation, century to century, now millennium to millennium, we can just so comfortable with the fact that this is a time at which the gospel transitioned to the Gentiles. And forget about what an enormous, unanticipated, magnificent, indescribable moment this was in history. There are few moments in all of human history as significant as that which is recorded in Acts chapter 10 and 11. Surely the birth and death and resurrection and ascension of the Savior and, and the giving of the Holy Spirit, those as well, those as backdrop to this one. This one doesn't rise above them necessarily. It's just part of the same story and an immensely important and significant development happening here. It's worth pausing and pondering. And as we pause and ponder, what does is, what is the author, what does Luke want us to hear under the inspiration of the Spirit? The gospel is going also to the Gentiles. Luke is marveling here. It's as though he finishes chapter 10 and says, I can't move on from this yet. I know it's the same story again, but I, I'm going to record Peter's encounter with the apostles. The readers are going to need to hear this to get it, to, to, to enter into the story and to appreciate this moment along with us, lest the significance of what's happening here diminishes over time. Luke is marveling. Peter is marveling in this story. Part of what's captured in his retelling is, is just marveling at the gospel. The apostles and the brothers who were throughout Judea, as it's described here as the passage opens, they're marveling that repentance and life through the Holy Spirit are available even to the Gentiles. And Luke has underscored that for us then by wrapping this story in that astounding realization to make sure that his readers don't miss the reason why he's included it here. And it wasn't just the gospel that went to the Gentiles. So did the Holy Spirit. The third person of the Trinity that's the gift of God to those who savingly believe. The Jews, it would appear, even the apostles, thought that was a gift exclusively for Israel. And now they're realizing for the first time something different. God's salvation plan 
is for the nations. We see a little hint of this in Ephesians chapter 3 as Paul is meditating on the mystery there and talking to the Ephesian church about it and says that surely you understand there in verse 10 and following, surely you understand that, that it's through the church that the manifold wisdom of God in the gospel is made known to the principalities and powers. The angels of heaven and the demons of hell did not understand the scope of salvation until they saw salvation create a church, one new man out of the two, Jew and Gentile, saved by one and the same means, inhabited now by one and the same spirit. It's an amazing moment in world history. God's salvation plan is for the nations. The scope of His kingdom, His reign, is global. His promise to Abraham did not just mean that the nations would be blessed by Israel as God blessed them uniquely. It meant that through the Messiah who was born into Abraham's line, some people from each and every nation on earth would enjoy saving covenant relationship with God would be reconciled to Him forever, would receive His Holy Spirit as the deposit guaranteeing their inheritance and as their enabling to walk in a manner worthy of Him throughout the course of this life. The promise to Abraham exploded in the minds of the disciples at this point. Through you will all the nations of the earth be blessed because all who come to you will have equal access to you through the means of salvation that you provide? What an amazing reality this is. Of course Peter is sharing this with the apostles, and of course Luke is recording it for a second time in his history of the early church because you can't move on quickly from this point. We see that truth underscored in the structure of this passage. This salvation that... Jesus had secured this kingdom that he was building was not just going to be monoethnic. In fact, it wasn't even just going to be polyethnic. It was going to be omni-ethnic. That had to sink in. It had to sink in for Peter. It had to sink in for the apostles. It had to sink in for the Jews in Jerusalem and those beyond. They weren't prepared for it. They were, but they weren't. All that Jesus had been describing to them about the kingdom, you think he didn't hit on these points, but they weren't, they weren't penetrating. There wasn't room. That's why as he's about to leave, that's the question they ask. Is now the time that you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? We think that's a question about timing. I'm not sure that it is. I think they're still trying to process what he's teaching them and haven't grasped that this salvation that he's provided is going to be universal in scope. It's going to reconcile to him people from every tribe and language and nation. And there just wasn't room for that in their minds and hearts and concepts. If they were astute listeners, they were realizing this, that this event that was happening right in front of them was the answer to that question that they asked, 
Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom to Israel? But both the question and its answer were so much bigger than they realized. That the only way they were going to grasp the answer was to actually see it unfold before their very eyes. And that's what Luke is recording here. The unfolding of God's amazing and immense plan of salvation before their very eyes. And you know what the joyful part of this is? There's probably no one that got more of the gospel prior to this event than the apostles themselves. They're the ones whom Jesus had chosen and then uniquely prepared to be His messengers and to spread His church. And they are the ones through whom the gospel is being preached at this point. They were His means of evangelization, of the building of His kingdom and of His reign. And yet they didn't understand the scope of it until they actually saw it happen through them and take root in the hearts of someone for whom they had no concept of salvation. So you can almost hear Jesus now at this point diverting that question back in chapter 1, verse 6. Is now the time you're going to restore the kingdom of Israel? Just saying, listen, you're going to receive power. The Holy Spirit's going to come upon you. You're going to be my witnesses in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, to the ends of the earth. And come back and ask your question. Here's where you see how it works. And the disciples are overwhelmed with what they're seeing. One of the bigger contributions to the answer to that question is happening right here before their eyes, recorded in Acts 10 and 11. This amazing truth is just descending on Peter and also on the Jewish Christians in Jerusalem. And all Peter could do, all he could do is just tell the story, verse 4. He just had to tell the story. But then again... That's all that needed to happen was for him to just tell the story. Once you tell the story of what took place, you recognize this isn't being engineered by Peter. Peter isn't deserving of the rebuke that he's hearing from the Judaizers there in Jerusalem. He didn't have any control over what happened here. He went where he was told. He said what he was told. And God did the rest. Oftentimes, I mean, or at least at the significant moment, not waiting for Peter even to finish, so it would appear starting to preach the gospel, and the Holy Spirit falls on these folks before they even have a chance to at least record saving belief. Salvation is a sovereign work of God, my friends, and He grants it according to His will and purpose. He has mercy on whom He will have mercy, compassion on whom He will have compassion. This story spoke for itself. I appreciate the work of John Stott who observed that this story releases, really, four divine hammer blows. Four divine hammer blows, as he called it, which were all aimed deftly at Jewish racial prejudice and especially at Peter's racial prejudice. And that's how Stott wrote this many years ago, well before we're in the days that we're in. This is what's being addressed here. Boundaries are being broken. Concepts are being shattered. And the gospel is going to people previously unsavable, really, in the Jewish mind. The four hammer blows, let me give them to you. These are the things God did in this story to advance it. This is the reason why all Peter had to do was tell the story. 
Because the story would speak for itself. The first is the vision. When God interrupted Peter's prayer, love the way Dave talked about that last Sunday. God interrupted Peter's prayer. And then also Cornelius' time of prayer. So the vision or the visions is the hammer blow number one. Number two, the command. When God sent Peter with these Gentiles to Cornelius' home, go with them. Make no distinction, he said. That's at the heart of the telling, both in chapters 10 and 11, slightly different wording. Make no distinction. Don't be worried about going with these guys because you're associating with Gentiles. Go with them. I'm doing this. So that's the second hammer blow, the visions, the command. Third, the preparation that Peter realized when he arrived, that God had prepared Cornelius to hear him. Now we're talking about not just the vision and the interruption, but the fact that Cornelius' heart was ready. Listen to this Peter. He said it here in chapter 11. Listen to Peter. He's the one who's going to give you the message that you need to hear for the spiritual salvation of yourself and of your household. So the command is hammer blow number three. I'm sorry, the preparation is the hammer blow number three. And then the action is number four, the pouring out of the Spirit at the point in the story at which God sovereignly purposed to do so. So the vision, the command, the preparation, the action, four hammer blows to the, to the Jewish mindset about what salvation is and to the churches throughout the generations since then. Salvation is of the Lord. Stott finishes his quote by saying, Taken together, these demonstrated conclusively that God had done this work. He had welcomed believing Gentiles into his family on equal terms with believing Jews. He's making one new man out of the two. Peter was stunned. He remembered Jesus' words that he had spoken to them just before they asked him that final question. John, baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. You can hear from his reference to that here in verse 16, referring back to Acts 1-5. You can hear in that 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 statement probably didn't make sense to them at the time. They didn't know what that entailed. But now as they see this work going forward, they they realize what this means. The Holy Spirit of God is with them in the work that they're called to do, and He's the one accomplishing that work. He's using their mouths to do it. He's using their feet to carry the gospel to the place where it needs to be proclaimed. He's using their hearts and their wills to increase their joy in the service that they're offering to the kingdom of God. But this is God's work going forward in God's timing by God's power to God's chosen people. God did it all. As the depth and development, as the, the content and contribution of God's saving purpose and plan were unveiled here, Peter just had to stand back and watch with awe. And he was a central player in it. He is absolutely inspired to awe by what God is doing. And God was doing it through His own mouth. It's an amazing story. It's worth pausing and pondering and reflecting on why Luke would tell this twice. 
But we also know that all the implications didn't sink in immediately for Peter or the rest. This whole circle of folks here that's described at the beginning of Acts 11 will need ongoing help processing how Jewish believers are supposed to respond to Gentile converts. They're going to need ongoing help. This is sinking in, but it's not, it's not a quick process. We'll see that as the Jerusalem Council comes around in chapter 15, and they have to explore this whole situation again and decide on what is the nature of the engagement, the interaction between Jew and Gentile. How do, how, how do Jews respond to Gentiles? How do Gentiles honor Jews? And at just about the same time as that, Peter himself is confronted by Paul. It's recorded in Galatians chapter 2, verses 11 to 14, where, where he had been eating with Gentiles, and then when certain Jews were around, he stopped. And Paul said, Peter, you can't do that. And they had a conversation about that, talked through that. They're still working it out themselves. That's not to their shame. That's to the magnification of the immensity of what's happening here and what it's going to take to change their minds about the nature of the gospel. But we can still struggle with this even today. If there is any concern that I personally have for the church in our day, and I don't claim to be one of those people who sees widely or broadly, just talking about the church with which I have some experience, the church in, say, the affluent western suburbs of Chicago, Going beyond the walls of this place, I'm not looking for a way to sort of insinuate that I'm speaking only to you, but it's visible in the church and you can see it as well. If there's anything that characterizes us to our detriment, it's a loss of the sense of the magnitude of the gospel, the immensity of the saving work that God has done through Christ toward the giving of the Spirit. We just lose touch with that. It's, it's not, I don't think, because we despise it, surely. It's not even because we disrespect it. We just can lose touch with its immensity because there's nothing else in our experience that is as grand as that or on that grand a scale. And so the gospel becomes common to us. And we can even be a little embarrassed about it. When it comes time to share it in certain spheres, certain places, certain dialogues, certain arguments, certain debates in our day, it's only because we've, we've lost touch with what it is and how it works and what it means. We're afraid to talk about a God in whom some people don't even believe actually loving us enough to send His own Son to take on flesh and absorb the penalty for their sin that they don't even acknowledge is present. We can feel a little sheepish about that. About trying to tell that story. Acts chapter 11 is one of the passages that helps free us from that. <laughs> it gives us the opportunity to think through one more time what actually happened between Peter and Cornelius and what was taking place and why it was that they were responding to it the way that they were and, and how we really need this same sort of experience ourselves.
we can still struggle with how to relate to the gospel, how to respond to the gospel, how to present the gospel, how to proclaim it, to contextualize it, to explain it, a universal gospel. How do we do that in our day? When it comes time to share the gospel, we can always believe that there's, there's just more we need to know before we can do it. And so we sort of back off thinking, I need to learn more first. But my friends, I would suggest we begin to learn all that we need to learn right here, right here in this text, as Peter and the others watch God sovereignly advance the gospel across a wholly new boundary line and then confirm it with the same signs that he enabled on the day of Pentecost. And Peter, we can see and know from the very testimony of Scripture, still didn't get it entirely. And yet God is using him at this time and this place. He can use you and me as well. Still, there are many ways that this story can be misunderstood or misrepresented. And I want to take just a moment on that before drawing us to a close here. There are many ways that this story can be misunderstood or misrepresented. Some, for instance, think that this story proves that our, our theology is actually shaped by our experience, not by an authoritative word of God, that we get to know God only by watching Him work in the world. So we really move on from the Scriptures and just see what God is doing, and that's how we form and shape our theology. But my friends, that's, that's just not so. That's not even so in the text here. We get to know God in His Word, and all He does is consistent with His Word. What we learn here is the full scope of the saving plan that God has promised in His Word. He's not going beyond His Word here to show us something extra. He's just enacting His Word and fulfilling His promises. That's an important truth to remember as we engage Acts chapter 10 and 11. Our theology is not formed by our experience. We see God doing exactly what God told us He was going to do in His Word in this text. Others have suggested that this passage shows us that things that were declared unclean and the Old Testament aren't unclean any longer. This is a hotly debated passage, especially chapter 10 in our day. Even as the sins the people commit in the Old Testament, what was unclean before is not unclean any longer. Those who think the Bible, for instance, no longer condemns same-sex relationships and marriage often point to this passage and say that what was previously unclean is unclean no longer. But that's not what this text is talking about either. This vision is not lowering the standard of righteousness. It's not accommodating the message of God to the sins of the people that He's saving. This vision is not lowering the standard of the law, but broadening the reach of salvation. He's not excusing sin here. He's, he's spreading the gospel to new ethnicities so that we can see the saving plan and purpose of God unfold. When the Gentiles turn from their sin in repentance and faith, they receive the same 
cleansing and life that the Jews receive. Then they're empowered by God's Spirit to walk in obedience to His Word. This isn't changing the standard or expectation of God in any respect. It's actually the message that allows us actually to meet that standard by faith in a perfect Savior who absorbed the penalty for our sin and grants us His righteousness in return. This is the message and meaning of the gospel here in Acts chapter 11, verses 1 to 18. Repentance that leads to life is granted by God to forgive our sins, to cleanse us, and to reconcile us to Himself forever, and also to all those who also trust in Him. And this truly is an awe-inspiring gift as we see it transition here to the first Gentile who says then, by his experience, this is for the whole world. So what are we supposed to do with this ourselves today? What do we do with this text? Three primary takeaways I want to give to you this morning from Acts chapter 11. And we won't take just a couple of minutes on this, but three primary takeaways from here in Acts chapter 11. Number one, Marvel at this great salvation that, reckons, that, that rescues Jews and Gentiles alike. Marvel at this great salvation that rescues Jews and Gentiles alike. Any action point coming out of Acts 11 that doesn't include our marveling in the same way that these guys were marveling and the attention that's drawn to it is going to miss the central point. So let's begin our response to Acts 11 this morning by marveling at the same salvation at which Peter and the apostles were marveling. There's no ethnic, no cultural, no religious group that is denied access to this gospel in Christ. It's an amazing and a glorious gospel. Second, rejoice that this salvation has gone to the Gentiles. So marvel at this great salvation that rescues both Jew and Gentile and then rejoice that it goes to the Gentiles. Why? That's us. We are the recipients here of that very transition that was recorded here. This, as we have said from the beginning, is our story. We're entering into it, not because we're somehow extending the canon of Scripture, but because it's told in such a way as it's our forebears, it's our forefathers and foremothers in the faith. We are among the Gentiles that are saved because the gospel was intended for the whole world. To you and me also, God has granted repentance that leads to life. That's worth rejoicing over, isn't it? Amen. Jesus provided for our salvation, and He did so unexpectedly, even though He had foreshadowed it in His Word. We see it now. We see it now. But don't take it for granted. Peter didn't. And we can't afford to get soft on the account of Acts 10 and 11. We do so to our own peril, as we talked about just a moment ago. So, marvel at this great salvation that rescues Jews and Gentiles alike. Rejoice that this salvation has gone to the Gentiles. And third, Trust that the gospel truly is the best solution for all that divides us. Trust that the gospel truly is the best solution for all that divides us, even still today. 
I put it this way, not because we'd ever believe that this statement is false, but I put it this way because even so, we can far too easily live as though we don't believe it's true. So we never falsify this statement, but does the course of our lives argue that we believe it's true? That's a little harder to affirm. Trust that the gospel truly is the best solution for all that divides us. We can live in this world as though political action is the best way to resolve differences. Voting in the right way, signing the right petitions, lobbying on the right issues. Or we can live as though education is the best way to improve lives. Reading the right books, attending the right schools, espousing the right ideas. Or we can live as though social action is the best way to ease suffering. Addressing the right issues, supporting the right causes, refusing the right privileges, and that's a popular one these days. We have certain things available to us that we deny ourselves usage of because others don't have those things. Supposedly, that's the best way to ease human suffering. And there's surely nothing wrong with any of these areas. There's nothing wrong with engagement in politics or education or social action. We should all feel burdened to, to display responsible engagement in each of these three areas. But the gospel, the gospel is our highest calling. The gospel is our primary allegiance. And the gospel surely is our first expression whenever we encounter human division or despair or suffering. The gospel is the heart of the answer. I've heard some people say that doesn't matter how much you know until people know how much you care. They don't care how much you know until they know how much you care. As though somehow we earn the right to speak the gospel by addressing some felt need first. I can't affirm that. That's not the way it works. Now surely when we see pressing need right in front of us, the genuinely biblical response to that is to compassionately reach out and meet that need. But even that is a gospel expression when it's done rightly. It's not sort of a beginning expression out of the compassion of my own heart so that you might somehow be interested in why I'm doing it. Therefore, ask me the question and I can start talking to you about the gospel, having earned the right to do so by my compassionate heart. Newsflash. I don't have a compassionate heart, neither do you, except the one that's being formed in us by the Spirit of God working through the Word of God according to the plan and purpose of God. Now, even when we reach out to address felt needs, we're expressing the gospel and we can't afford in our own minds and hearts to let a divide develop between those two as though we're doing the one in order to do the other. 
gospel should always be our go-to solution. When, when we feel the tension in our own hearts that leads us to believe that some people may need something else more, no one anywhere on this planet needs anything more than they need the gospel. despite the immense needs that are represented on the face of this planet. No one needs anything more than the gospel. It should always be our go-to solution, even when we feel that tension in our hearts where we think someone needs something else more, or others perhaps just maybe aren't worthy of the gospel. That's something that needs to be remembered in our day as well. There are those who are so opposed to a Christian worldview that that every encounter with them is antagonistic. And if we're not careful in our own hearts, we can get to the place where we think that they aren't worthy of the compassion and mercy and the offer of forgiveness that's present in the gospel. God help us from that because it's the only solution to that which divides. What we learn from Peter's experience in Acts 10 and from his reviewing of it with the apostles here in Acts 11, his reflecting on it, pondering its implications, reliving it once more with feeling, is that no one is beyond the scope of the gospel. No one is beyond the scope of the gospel. No one is beyond the reach of the sovereign, saving arm of God. No message will ever outdo this one when it comes to addressing the full range of human need in our fallen and broken world. And everyone needs to hear it. Everyone needs to hear it. Amen? So when we hear a passage of Scripture that just marvels, wow, let's take the word Gentiles out. The gospel saves anyone, anywhere. And it's going to save someone from everywhere. What an amazing, amazing truth this is. That's why we pause and ponder Acts 11. To let that sink in and reshape our hearts in the likeness of our Savior who provided this salvation. And now I want to invite you to join me at the table of the Lord to remember the body and blood of the Lord, which has accomplished this great salvation. I'm going to lead us in prayer, and even as I do, uh, the musicians can return to the platform, and uh, those who are going to help serve communion can join me at the front. Let's pray together. Oh, Heavenly Father, I thank you. I thank you for Peter's experience here. And Father, we want to confess his sin each of the times we're tempted in the reading of the book of Acts to just sort of skirt past it quickly because we just read the story in greater detail a moment ago. Father, I pray that you would help us to pause and ponder even as Peter and the apostles did in this retelling, even as it appears as though Luke did in this retelling. And I pray that you would restore to our minds and hearts the immense scope and reach of the gospel. That we might glory in it, marvel at it, rejoice in it, and be renewed in our conviction that nothing else is needed more than this 
in our day and age, and especially in the conversations over all that divides us as a nation, as a people in this day. Oh, Father, help the church to be the church and strengthen us for that calling by the grace that you supply in this very act of remembrance of the body and blood of the Lord. In Jesus' name we pray, amen.